Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Hi, everyone. This week, we are joined by investment researcher and founder of Research Affiliates, Rob Arnott. Rob, welcome. Thank you very much. Welcome, Rob. Before we kick off, could you please give us a feel for what your day-to-day role means at Research Affiliates? Sure. I'm the founding chairman, and three and a half years ago, I kicked myself up to non-executive chairman role, so I don't get involved in day-to-day management of the business. I get involved in whatever's fun and nothing that's not fun. (laughs) And that means I'm involved in portfolio management and R&D. And those are my main areas of focus. Cool. You've obviously got a long history in investment research. And I just want to, we'll back up in a second and talk about that a little bit. But Rob, why don't you tell us one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? One thing that comes to mind that's utterly irrelevant to your viewers is that One of my peculiar hobbies is that I'm an eclipse junkie. So whenever there's a total solar eclipse, I'm there. The next total solar eclipse is in early December in Antarctica. So being an eclipse junkie gives me excuses to go to all sorts of strange places in the world. So I'm taking an icebreaker down to Antarctica to watch an eclipse. Wow, that is very cool. But when was the last one? The 2003 jumps out for some reason. Was that just in Europe or...? It's interesting. There's an eclipse almost once a year somewhere in the world, but because eclipses go across this really skinny band across the earth, the shadow typically is at most 100 miles wide. And so you get this ribbon across the world where you can go and see a total eclipse. It's odd. Some people think that if they get close to it and see a partial eclipse, that it's almost the same thing. It's not. (laughs) Total eclipse is quite radically different and one of the most amazing things the sky has to offer. Cool. So apart from Antarctica, what's the most exciting or interesting place that that hobby has taken you? Oh, Western Patagonia, Bhutan, Northern China against the Mongolian border. Wow. The one I missed that I still kicked myself for was a 94, there was an eclipse that went over the Taj Mahal. And I thought, flying 10,000 miles for a 20-second eclipse? Nah. (laughs) And I've been regretting it ever since. The opportunity to share an eclipse with one or two million newfound Indian friends would have been quite spectacular. Okay. Well, I thought for the benefit of our listeners, might try and just sort of back up a little bit and give them a little bit of history on your background, Rob. What I was going to try and do, I mean, I was going to try and briefly summarize, do correct me where I go wrong here. So you're the founder of Research Affiliates. Yes. The firm manages, I think it's about 170 billion US dollars. But of course, the catch is you don't manage a lot of it directly. You license your indices to other managers such as PIMCO, correct. such as in General, who then run the actual assets. That's exactly right. And those indices, they based from what I understand on your research and a sort of, I suppose, a unifying feature of a lot of it is that they're what you call fundamental indices. We're best known for our work in quantitative equities as the inventors of fundamental index, which was actually the original inspiration for Towers Watson to come up to coin the expression smart beta. 
they realized that fundamental index by anchoring on the size of the business and rebalancing to concentrate against the market's constantly changing opinions, you capture an alpha from pricing errors that the market makes and then corrects. And they thought that's pretty smart. So they looked around for other strategies that would do the same sort of rebalancing, things as simple as equal weight or optimization-based minimum variance strategies, or the list goes on and on. But it's fair to say that fundamental index remains the largest of the smart beta strategies, and of course, the best. In summary, then, so it's a broad market index that weights based on things other than the market capitalization and the price. Am I right in saying that's sort of That's exactly right. After the bursting of the tech bubble in the year 2000, I started to ruminate on the question, why do people want to capitalization weight? I mean, if a company is a better company, it deserves a premium multiple. But if it's got that premium multiple, which it will have if people are even vaguely aware of the superiority of the company's products or strategies, then the fact that it's a better company isn't going to help you. Your investments won't perform better unless they exceed lofty expectations. And the companies that are trading at a deep discount, crummy companies facing headwinds, skinny profit margins, sluggish growth, management that isn't ahead of the game. These companies deserve a discount, but the discount isn't going to hurt you unless they underperform bleak expectations. And so by anchoring on the size of the business, you're basically saying, look, the market probably gets it right most of the time. High price stocks deserve a high price, but the market's constantly changing its mind. And as the market's changing its mind, wouldn't it be nice to contra-trade against that and capture a little incremental return every time the market prices something too high and then corrects it or prices it too low and then corrects it? So the nice thing is, while cap weighting mirrors the look and composition of the stock market, fundamental index mirrors the look and composition of the macro economy. So think of it as an economy-weighted index. The other thing we're known for is contrarian asset allocation, global asset allocation. We run about $25 billion in global asset allocation strategies for PIMCO. So those are our two primary areas where we have established a reputation as thought leaders. Rob, you just mentioned the tech bubble, and I imagine over your career, you've done a fair bit of research on bubbles, reasons why they develop, reasons why they burst. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your experience with bubbles, what you've learned from the research you've done, and any frameworks that you've got for sort of trying to identify and assess those. We've written a couple of fun papers on the topic of bubbles. And one thing I'm proud of is we decided people use the word bubble usually in hindsight, the tech bubble the oil bubble, the Japan bubble, the list goes on. They don't use it in real time except sloppily. So we thought what we need is a definition for the term bubble that is actionable that you can use in real time. And we came up with a very simple definition. And that is, if you're using a valuation model like discounted cash flow, you have to make implausible assumptions to justify the current price. Not impossible, but implausible. And as a cross-check on that definition, the marginal buyer doesn't care about valuation models. They care about the narrative that's driving their decision. So if you have both conditions met, you've got a bubble. If you've got the opposite, if you've got 
something trading at such a low price that you'd have to make implausible assumptions to not earn a good risk premium and the marginal seller doesn't care about valuation models, then you have an anti-bubble. And both are interesting. The other thing that we have learned about bubbles that a lot of people get hurt by bubbles, not because they're wrong, but because bubbles last longer and go further than anyone can possibly imagine. My favorite example is the Zimbabwe stock market during their hyperinflation in 2008. As the summer of 2008 started, you might have said, this country is going through hyperinflation. What an awful place to invest. I think I want to short sell the Zimbabwe stock market. And because it's a volatile, crazy market, I'll short sell just 2% of my net worth. Now, over the first six weeks of the summer, the currency fell tenfold. The stock market rose 500-fold in local currency terms, which means 50-fold in dollar terms, which means your 2% short position just bankrupted you. Eight weeks later, the currency had fallen another hundredfold. The stock market basically went to zero and stopped trading. So you were right, but bankrupt. So bubbles, you have to be incredibly careful. There are those who try to participate in a bubble, more power to them. My response to that is very simple. Don't play bubbles with money you can't afford to lose and have an exit strategy. What is your exit strategy? If you don't have an exit strategy, don't play. So bubbles can be very dangerous, but you don't have to own them. And anti-bubbles are fun because you can own them. There is limited downside risk. It can only go to zero. And so anti-bubbles represent kind of a fun opportunity. Today, I would characterize Chinese and Russian state-owned enterprises as an anti-bubble. Their yield is north of 5%. Price to cash flow is typically two and a half to three times. The narrative is the government controls whether you get anything out of this investment. They might decide you're going to get nothing, and they have the power to do that. Absolutely true. But if they want access to global capital, then it makes sense to think they're going to continue to distribute what they've been distributing, maybe let it grow with inflation. They're not going to let you get rich. But if it just grows with inflation, you've got a 5% real return. That's not bad. And that's, to my way of thinking, the downside risk. So bubbles are fascinating. Bubble gets thrown around a lot at the moment. People would have used it in the context of another tech bubble, NASDAQ, FANGs, Apple, Google sort of thing. Obviously, Tesla, EVs gets thrown around as well. Picking through all of that and putting it against your framework, which of those would you say sort of meet the criteria in the framework and which of them don't? Well, if you're using a valuation model for Apple, you have to make aggressive assumptions to justify today's price, but not implausible assumptions. And there are marginal buyers who, using valuation models, say, based on these assumptions, this stock is cheap. You generally don't find that with Tesla. In fact, Morningstar had me debate Kathy Wood a few weeks ago on Tesla, and I said, what's your valuation framework? And maybe she'd read my paper, but she said, well, the company is going to grow 89% a year for the next five years. And then at the end of the five years, it'll be priced similarly to today's FANG stocks. And if you do the math on that, it's worth 3000 a share. I was playing nice during the interview. I'd been counseled to play nice. So <laughs> I did not come back and say, 
Well, that means the company will be 25 times as large in five years as it is today. And that's twice as much growth as Amazon has had in the last 10 years. Amazon's 14 times the size it was 10 years ago. You think Tesla will achieve twice that growth in just five years. That strikes me as highly implausible. So I would view Tesla as a bubble. I would view Netflix as a bubble. Zillow, list goes on. So there's bubbles galore, but I wouldn't say the broad market is a bubble. I would say the broad market is expensive and a little dangerous. Broad market in the US, in the UK, stocks are pretty cheap and UK growth stocks are a little expensive and UK value stocks are very cheap. So I wrote a piece a few months ago, we'd been saying since last fall, that UK value might be the trade of a decade because the valuations are such that UK value should give you at least 10% a year on a 10-year basis. Well, that's not a bad rate of return. Should we maybe talk about growth and value? That's one of the areas we were keen to explore. And I suppose the commentary around why value ought to do better in the future isn't necessarily new. And I feel like I've heard sort of a similar argument and You may well be right this time, and it's not you that I've heard arguments from in the past, but I've heard arguments probably for the last three or four years saying this will turn around and value will start outperforming, and we haven't seen that happen yet. Well, we have. We have. From September of last year to May, value staged a global rebound that was quite impressive. Since then, with the COVID delta wave, values retreated again, given up about half of its gains, but it's well ahead of where it was last September. And do you think that, aside from the Delta variant issues, will that trend continue for the same reasons it occurred in the sort of six to eight months that it happened, or are there different drivers in the future? There will always be different drivers, but I think that same driver is in place now. One thing I love to do in investing is roll the clock forward five years. And just as a thought experiment, five years from now, will COVID still be an issue? No. Will the magnitude of the run-up of debt and deficits still be an issue? Yeah. Will an aging demographic with more senior citizens seeking to liquidate financial assets in order to buy goods and services in retirement, will that still be an issue in five years? Yes. So it's a great way to distill what matters from what doesn't matter The media is full of whatever is the current hot topic. One of my friends, Charles Gov, likes to say, I'm always asking, what are these trying to distract me from? (laughs) 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 And media feeds on fear and drama. So whatever is happening right now is very important to them. For an investor, what matters is what's going to change between now and five years from now that the market isn't thinking about. And that's a nice framework. So I look on the current bleak pricing for value and the narrative behind it, that there will be rolling bankruptcies before this COVID mess is over. That narrative is fading away. That order flow disruptions for trade supply blockages are going to continue to wreak havoc, particularly with value companies because they aren't tech, because they aren't bypassing all of this with direct links 
to people's homes. Well, that's not going to be an issue in, I would say, the supply chain problems shouldn't be an issue in a year, certainly not in three. And so that'll dissipate. And as those things dissipate, people turn attention to value stocks, which they're pricing as a call option on whether the company survives. And once survival is no longer at risk, then you value them as an ongoing business. And that valuation level is higher than the call option pricing. And so that's the basis for a recovery in value. Value got stretched further last summer than even at the peak of the tech bubble, which means growth stocks were more expensive than the peak of the tech bubble, value stocks less expensive than at that time. The spread, which on a price-to-book value basis got to 10 to 1 in the tech bubble, it got to 13 to 1 last summer. It came back to about 10 to 1, roughly matching peak of the tech bubble by May, and now it's back out to 11 to 1. So value is one eleventh as expensive as growth. Do I really think that the growth companies are going to collectively achieve 11 times as much wealth creation for shareholders as boring companies that produce boring products and steady, modest profits? No. The drawdown in value has been very interesting to watch. The most popular way to define value is price-to-book value. It's a terrible measure. It's arguably the worst way to define value because so many companies have intangible assets. We all hear the cliche that our assets go up and down in the elevator every day. That's true of more and more businesses in a service-dominated economy. So book value misses intangibles unless there's been an acquisition, in which case the intangibles of the acquiree show up as goodwill on the balance sheet. Now, companies seeking to grow organically with a lot of intangible assets, patents, trade secrets, brand, reputation, all of these things, the vast majority of their assets are not bricks and mortar and desks and pencils. So if you use price to book, which is the classic definition, value peaked in 2007, had a 13 and a half year bear market in which it underperformed growth by 58 percentage points. That is to say, every $100 you put into both portfolios today or by last summer, the value portfolio was worth 42 cents on the dollar compared to the growth portfolio. That's horrific. What's fascinating is that the relative cheapness of value fell 70%. 2007, growth was four times as expensive as value. Summer of 2020, it was 13 times as expensive as value. So based on price to book, you had value cheapening by 70% and underperforming by 58%. Why is that important? Imagine you have a stock that has a P.E. ratio that fell 70% and pulled the stock down 58%. That means the earnings are larger. That means the underlying fundamentals have gotten better, not worse. You can look at that and say, I can't stand the pain, get me out of here. Or you can look at that and say, I can't believe how cheap this is. If I'm not willing to buy now, when would I ever? And that's my view on value. The other nuance is if you use different definitions of value, 
it continued to perform well for at least a few years. If you use price earnings ratios, the peak was 2013. If you take price to book and adjust for intangibles, and there's some interesting ways to do that, it peaked in 2014. If you use price to sales ratio, it peaked in 2017. If you use RAFI weight to cap weight, which is kind of a blend of multiple relative valuation measures, it peaked in 2017. So was it a 13-year dry spell or a three-and-a-half-year dry spell? <laughs> Either way, it was a dry spell. Even with the best measures, it underperformed growth by 4,000 basis points. It matters, though, I guess that's the point. A three-year dry spell is a very different proposition to 13 years. I suppose on the one hand, you might say, well, look, you're just arguing over definitions and equations that sort of no one's that interested in. But it does matter how you define these it things. It does matter. It sounds it like you're in the camp that's negative on the price to book ratio as it were moving forward in all of our work we modify price to book to take into account intangibles and we use multiple measures price to book price to sales price to cash flow price to dividends plus buybacks these are all legitimate measures based on how big and successful is the business you've got measures based on how much does it sell how much does it profit from the sales how much does it distribute back to the shareholders how much does it retain to build the book value inclusive of intangibles. And uh, they're all useful measures. Using a blend is, to our way of thinking, the natural way to do it. Makes sense. One sort of really big picture question that occurs to me there. I mean, I've seen people say that the whole sort of accounting framework doesn't really properly capture the value being created by the sort of intangible tech firms, you know, everything from earnings to obviously book value and the way the whole thing is created just fundamentally doesn't capture it. Would you see some truth in that or do you think that's kind of wrong? Most narratives have the advantage of being true and the disadvantage of being absolutely fully reflected in share prices. <laughs> so they won't help you. The narrative surrounding growth is true. These companies are good companies with terrific products and pioneering innovation disrupting their industries and spillover effects that disrupt other industries. What people overlook is two things. One, the main beneficiary of disruptors is not the disruptors, it's their customers. Two, disruptors get disrupted. Palm was spun out from a company called 3Com back in the year 2000, quickly ascended to be worth more than General Motors worth more than 3Com was before they spun off the company, which means that the market was valuing the rest of 3Com's business as a negative, that was its peak. Two years later, BlackBerry was sweeping the market and Palm disappeared from the scene. Six years after that, the iPhone came out and who carries a BlackBerry anymore? So disruptors get disrupted. Will somebody disrupt Google? Not if Google can help it. One of the things the tech giants do is use their stock as inflated currency to buy other businesses. So if there's a disruptor that they're uneasy about, the natural decision is buy it, or if not buy it, try to squash it. But disruptors come along that are tough to squash. And so it's a fast-changing landscape. And I think the narrative that tech will reshape our future and dominate our future is absolutely correct. The narrative that these particular tech companies will continue to be the pioneering, dominating 
forces in their industries and additional industries in the years ahead. That's a little dangerous. You've, of course, made a career out of quant research, and you must have come across many techniques where quants get things wrong. Wondered if you could share some of those thoughts with us. Well, the number one problem with quants is the reliance on data and data mining. Anytime you look at data, you're engaged in data mining. So first things first, be aware that that's what you're doing. Quants will, for example, identify factors that have worked in the past and assume they'll work in the future. Cam Harvey did a survey paper in which he showed that in the top three finance journals, over the last 30 years, there have been 400 factors published in just three journals. I asked him how many of the 400 worked. He laughed and he said 400. I asked (laughs) him how many were statistically significant. He said almost all of them. I asked him how many of them asked the very simple question, did this idea, this factor, this strategy rise in popularity, creating a rising relative valuation for the factor so that the factor was becoming more expensive, which will, one, improve the backtest returns tremendously, and two, if there's any mean reversion, will lead the future to not resemble the past. He said not a single one of the papers examined that question, not one. We wrote a paper back in 2016, How Can Smart Beta Go Horribly Wrong? It was very controversial, lambasted by a couple of our competitors, and I thought it was kind of funny because all we were saying is, hey, strategies, just like a stock can get ahead of its fundamentals, strategies can get ahead of their fundamentals. ESG today is popular. I have no problem with ESG investing. I have a problem with saying that something that has become popular and has grown more and more expensive over time and therefore has wonderful historical returns will therefore continue to have wonderful future returns. I think the correct way to position ESG is if you want to align your investments with your principles, go for it. If you do it right, it won't cost you much in the way of future return. If you do it wrong, it might. But don't take positive past returns and extrapolate them into the future. The quant community, sometimes I think a PhD blinds people to common sense and gets them fixated on finding nuances in the data that others haven't noticed without asking common sense questions. There was a wonderful paper that looked at 500 factors asked how many were statistically significant, pretty much all of them, how many had a T-statistic north of three, which is highly significant, something like 180 of them did. And then they said, let's retest each of these factors, but what we're going to do is strip out the bottom 2% of the market, just 2% of the market, the micro caps, the super thinly traded, the companies that you cannot possibly use on an institutional scale. The statistically significant ones fell to something on the order of 150 out of 500. The T-statistic higher than three fell to something like 15 factors out of 500. Now, if you're wanting to get tenure at a university, what better way to do it than to find a factor somebody else hasn't already published? And if you want the paper to be 
good enough to get you tenure, you want it to have wonderful results. So are you going to do anything that impedes the possibility of it having wonderful results? No. <laughs> I guess what you're saying there is that a lot of these factors, they don't tell you, but a lot of their value is derived from trading things that are really kind of small and very tough to trade properly. So they're sort of impractical. And or they haven't disaggregated that question of the effect of the popularity of a factor on its own valuation. That question is not being asked and answered fairly. 2016, when we published that paper, we actually were very explicit in saying it should be as natural for an academic to ask the question, did I have a revaluation alpha that contributed to the past return and that will be non-recurring? It should be just as natural to ask that question as to ask the question, does this merely mimic what Fama and French have already published, a Fama French attribution of returns? And the latter is de rigueur. You can't get published without doing a Fama French attribution analysis. But the former, the revaluation question to this day, I'm not aware of a single factor paper that has asked that question. And on the trading cost point, I've often thought that, especially when you have back tests that go back quite a long way in history, where I just always intuitively feel like the world is just so much more financialized since then. It's very hard to say what trading costs would have been. And I think it's quite hard to even look at a set of trading cost assumptions and actually say whether they're reasonable or not. I think you have to be quite deep in that world. I'm certainly not. I don't think I could look at a paper and say those trading cost assumptions look reasonable. It tends to be buried, I guess. It's not that interesting. And usually they don't even look at trading costs. They just assume that you can trade anything in the market for free. And that's patently ridiculous. Especially when some of these factors, the momentum-based ones, are based on buying things that are going up effectively. That seems like that's quite a bit of a hole there as well. There's this very interesting dichotomy. Momentum ostensibly works. You can make money by buying what's gone up. Value ostensibly works. You can make money by buying what's gone down. How do you reconcile those? It's actually surprisingly simple. Momentum, when it works, works short term. What's gone up continues to go up, has a half-life of about three months. It's gone by about eight months. And then it gives back every penny that it made you with room to spare. So if you buy a momentum stock and hold it, you will underperform. Not with every stock, of course, but in general, you will underperform. And that's because value has a powerful but slow effect. And momentum, when it works, has a powerful but fast effect. One other thing that I think is just fascinating is standard momentum, trailing 12 months, excluding the latest month, published back in 1993, I believe. It hasn't worked since 1999. And that's before trading costs. So the cumulative return, it made a little money. It lost a lot in the 2002 market turn. It made some money. It lost a lot in the momentum crash of 09. It made some money. It lost some earlier this year. So it seesawed, but it's below where it was in 99. So that means you've had 22 years in which momentum, standard momentum hasn't worked. The momentum investors will say, yeah, but we don't use standard momentum. Okay, fine. Were you using your better momentum strategy in 99? Were you using it in 2009 when the momentum crash happened? Generally speaking, momentum strategies that people use have been tailored to work better than standard momentum. 
but by the time they start using it, it doesn't necessarily work all that well. And the trading costs will eat you alive. Question that occurs to me actually, Rob, how many factors do you think exist? How many factors do you recognize? You've talked about 400, 500, 150 sort of thing. What sort I of numbers? I think they're all think? interconnected. I think they're all interrelated. I think there's probably at most a dozen more or less independent different factors that matter. And when I say that matter, I don't mean that they all make money. I mean that they all have a bearing on what types of stocks are working or not working at any given time. You've got value, you've got low beta, you've got momentum, you've got illiquidity, you've got quality. And the list pretty quickly starts to peter out where you're not finding new factors that aren't in some way closely related to the others. There was another fun paper that came out about three, four years ago where somebody just set a computer loose on the CompuStat database and said, create random factors and test them. And they tested 2 million factors. And they then singled out the 20 best performing. And this was not an exercise in finding the best factors. It was an exercise in finding how much can you get out of a database if you aggressively data mine? And the best strategy had a T-statistic of seven, was based on something obscure like four-year-old earnings yield minus four-year future rents paid, something that was total rubbish <laughs> that just happens to statistically work. And the point of the paper was data mining is easy. Finding something that works in the future is not. Rob, I wondered if what we could do now is just run through fairly quickly a bunch of questions that were just on my mind from listening to a bunch of other podcasts that you've done that you maybe didn't go into loads of detail of them. But the first one was a comment you made on one podcast that facts and strategies have been, I think you said something like radically oversold or something like that. Does that sound like something you might have said or have I made that up? You didn't make it up. Factor strategies, the narrative is these have been vetted by academia. They work. They work reliably. They don't always work at the same time. So use multiple factors to smooth out the ups and downs. And if you do that, if you've got five or six factors that all work, but work at different times, putting them together, you've got something that won't let you down. It'll add value for anyone patient enough to use it for three years or more. That's total rubbish. These have been vetted by academia as data mining exercises and publishing exercises, not with an eye towards, is it investable? They do work at different times. That part is true. And diversifying across multiple factors does mitigate your risk, but not as much as you think. When there's a crash in one factor, there's often a crash in multiple factors. So you have to be very careful of that. And the narrative is, believe the back test. There was one practitioner who took out full page ads in the Wall Street Journal back in 07, saying guaranteed no underperforming spans of three years or longer. Well, what they were guaranteeing was that the back test had no losing three year spans. The strategy performed badly. They came out with a new strategy three, four years later, and they said, this one has no down spans of even two years. Okay. 
<laughs> I mean, I've never seen so many billions of dollars moved on the basis of back tests. Back tests are useful for testing your ideas. Back tests are not useful for honing and refining the strategy to maximize the back test. And that's what so many people do. Yeah, I think it's a great point on the diversification point. I guess anyone who's played around with any kind of mean variance model knows that if you start playing with those correlation numbers, you start pushing them down a little bit, you very quickly get something that looks pretty amazing. If you have like a half dozen things, you push the correlation down, it, it starts to just look brilliant, doesn't it? So I guess that's the cautionary tale there that you're saying. There's a funny thought experiment. Suppose you did a back test of a strategy that looked for the best performing assets over the last 10 years and then applied them during those 10 years. Total look ahead bias. You'd have astounding performance in a T-statistic of about 99. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone would know that that was total rubbish. But if you choose factors that have worked brilliantly over the last decade and test them over that decade, then of course you're going to have a great back test. And people buy that hook, line, and sinker, which is really sad and dangerous. That's a great point. Slightly different angle, but indexing, obviously a lot of flows into passive investment the last few years. The big question, I suppose, can indexing get too big? Can passive investing get too big? If it's a true index that spans the whole market, I don't see the harm in it. Vanguard's extended market fund basically owns the entire U.S. stock market. How can that get too big? I mean, you'll still have money set aside that's not in that broad market index fund that's actively managed, and you'll have people who care about price, so price discovery will still happen. I think indexing has also been a little bit oversold. I say a little bit because it has some very powerful merits. If you own the broad market, you're going to get market returns. If you take that out of the stock market, this is Bill Sharp's arithmetic of active management, the passive money owns the market, and therefore the active money owns the same portfolio, plus or minus a little wiggle room. So the active portfolios collectively will have the same return as the passive. So how can they possibly win? Collectively, they can't unless there's a loser on the other side of their trades. In bonds, there are. Central banks don't have a profit motive. Insurance companies and banks have asset categories in bonds that they have to haircut for regulatory capital purposes, and so they'll avoid those. So the active managers can add value because the big pools of capital are cherry-picking certain parts of the market and making it overpriced. But in stocks, you don't have that. Now, that doesn't mean you can't win. But one question I've never had in hundreds of finals meetings for searching for new managers is, okay, who's the loser on the other side of your trade and why are they willing to lose? If you don't have a good answer to that question, you should get out of the active management business because you don't know who the loser is. <laughs> Indexing doesn't own the whole market. S&P 500 owns about 85% of the total U.S. stock market. The other 15% is other companies, and there's a valuation differential. You add it to the S&P, it'll trade for more higher valuation. There's an Achilles heel for indexing tied in with the fact that they don't own everything, and that is they are actively managed. They'll add a stock. 
and drop a stock. It's just very low turnover, so it's only slightly active. But the stocks they add, on average, are trading for three to four times the valuation multiples of the stocks they drop. We covered this in a paper called Buy High and Sell Low with Index Funds. You add a stock, Tesla versus AIV is a beautiful example. Phenomenal company with stupendous growth, astronomical valuations coming into the S&P at rank number six or seven out of the 500. AIV was in the bottom 50 and was a doggy company that had performed really badly. Lo and behold, you add this high flyer and what happens? It underperforms the market on average by 2% over the first year. The company that's dropped outperforms the market on average by 20% over that first year. So you could take the S&P's changes in the index, put a post-it note on the fridge, look at it a year later and say, okay, now I'm going to do that trade. And what do you get? You get S&P performance plus 18 basis points per annum going back 30 years. 18 basis points in indexing is a huge margin. And that's just by saying we're going to trade a year late. There are other very simple expedients that can break the link between the lofty valuation and the decision to add or delete. And if you pursue those, you can add tens of basis points to the market and still have a cap-weighted index. Nobody does that. And the reason they don't do that is, again, narratives. The indexers have educated the marketplace to understand that if there is any tracking error between our fund and the published index, it means that we've been sloppy. Well, what if that tracking error is 80% of the time on the plus side? That's not sloppy, that's smart, but it's perceived and portrayed as sloppiness. It's a great point. I mean, one point that's been, I think, well made in the recent rise of passive is the power that hands to the index providers. That's not necessarily a power they've had for a long time. They aren't supposed to be stock pickers. But as you say, the Tesla example shone a real light on the activities of the S&P committee and what they actually do and sort of how they make those decisions. And I guess that's an open question about indices. But there's a real anchoring to those small number of very popular ones. And I suppose part of what you try to do is question that a little bit and widen that. Is that sort of fair? Yeah. One more, Rob. Maverick risk. Quickly, how would you sum up Maverick risk and why does it matter? When I was editing the Financial Analyst Journal back in 2002 to 2006, I did a short piece entitled What Risk Matters? And I looked at the top 20 pension funds and I asked, how tightly do these funds track the performance of their peer group, track the performance of their liabilities, or track the performance of a steady state absolute return target, the actuarial return assumption. And what I found was that relative to the actuarial return assumption, they had average 12% risk. Relative to the liabilities, which they're targeted to serve, 15% risk. And relative to their peer group, 2% risk. So the risk that gets people fired is not volatility. It's not downside risk, the risk of loss. It's peer group risk. If you're 5% behind your peer group, you're going to get fired. If you're 25% behind your liabilities and so is everybody else, it's okay. Markets just spoiled it for everybody. So the risk that matters most for careers is maverick risk performance that differs from a peer group. The risk that matters most 
from the end customer's perspective is the mismatch between assets and the future spending that's intended. But incentives are aligned to make Maverick risk the most important. And do you have any tips to break that down? Because I think to most listeners, that's going to feel the wrong way around. There are a lot of ways to break that down. One is to track it, to measure it, to view it as an important metric for whether the management team is judged to have succeeded. To not pay attention to peer group, but that's never going to happen. (laughs) (laughs) And the other thing is for the investment committee of the board to track their own decisions and grade them. How many investment committees say, we chose manager A over manager B, how'd that work over the next five years? We chose to ramp up equity exposure well into a bull market because we didn't want to miss out on continuation of the bull market. How'd that work out five years later? I think boards owe it to themselves to do that. It goes against human nature. What's not measured can save your reputation in your career. That feels like a really neat final comment to kick off our wrap up. (laughs) Rob, I'm really keen to hear, we've covered so many different areas in today's discussion. I'm really keen to hear what the one thing is that you'd like listeners to take away. I think the most important thing is pay attention to narratives and ask the question, this narrative, is it already reflected in share prices? You bet it is. Is it going to matter five years from now? If yes, pay attention and try to study what the market might be missing in that narrative, what nuances the market might be overlooking, because there's profit to be found there. If it's not going to matter in five years, then trade opposite the narrative, contra-trade. Buying what's feared, loathed, and unloved is a great way to profit. We're in the only business in the global macro economy where people hate bargains. And <laughs> you shouldn't hate bargains. I like it. It's a really nuanced take on narratives. Isn't it? And Rob, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing? The most underappreciated is the importance of not following crowds. The importance of if a decision feels comfortable and right, and it's aligned with what your friends have been talking about, it's probably a really bad decision. If it feels uncomfortable, the markets don't reward comfort. If it feels uncomfortable, scary, it's much more likely to be profitable. Nice. I like it. And Rob, final question. Do you have any recommendations for the listeners? I'm old school. I like books that I can actually hold and read. There's a wonderful book from maybe 10 years ago that got a fair amount of attention, but probably not enough. It's called When Money Dies. It's an examination of past hyperinflations. It's a very good warning for what can happen when fiscal and monetary policy just gets untethered from reality. And I fear we're flirting with that kind of environment right now. Another more recent book came out a couple of years ago that got very little attention. It's a breeze to read. It's called... 10 Global Trends That Any Smart Person Should Know. If you want to feel pessimistic about the future, don't read this book. This book will make you feel very optimistic about the future. The major trends, wars, much less common than they used to be. Violent death, much less common than it used to be. 
infant mortality, much lower than it used to be. People around the world living in squalid poverty below $2 a day, which is the UN definition of the most extreme poverty. It was something on the order of 60% of the world population in 1990. It's about 8% today. So there's so many things that are happening that are good news, but good news doesn't catch eyeballs to the internet or to the media. And the good news gets ignored, but there's so much good news. The world is so much better place than it was 20, 30 years ago, let alone 50 or 100 years ago. And extrapolating into the future, unless we do something really stupid, the world will be an amazing place in 100 years. I can't wait. <laughs> it's a really, really nice point. It sounds like that book is a little bit similar to Factfulness, another one on a similar vein, I think, and making the point that good news often doesn't get the headlines that it ought to, and things are so much better. Anyway, Rob, it's been an absolutely great conversation today. Thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. All the best. Thanks, Rob. That's it from us today on Investment Uncut. Do join us again next week for another discussion. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.